This is the Journal of American History podcast for December 2013. Today we're speaking with Etienne Benson, who is an assistant professor in the History and Sociology of Science Department at the University of Pennsylvania, and he is the author of a wonderful article that appears in the December 2013 issue of the Journal of American History, The Urbanization of the Eastern Gray Squirrel in the United States, Uh, certainly one of the most creative and distinctive pieces we've run in some time. Etienne, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks. I'm I'm glad to do it. So let me uh, inform listeners of uh, a very important paragraph, I think, that you wrote early on in your piece and ask you to think about it and and think out of it to a number of the important uh, issues that arise in your piece. The urbanization of the gray squirrel in the United States between the mid-19th century and the early 20th century was a simultaneously ecological and cultural process that changed the squirrel's way of life, the urban landscape, and human understandings of nature, the city, and the boundaries of community. Squirrels were a part of the new complex of human-animal relationships that emerged in the American city at the turn of the 20th century as laboring animals were replaced by machines and dairy, meat, and egg production, and processing were shifted to the urban modules. Accounts of urban squirrels in newspapers, magazines, scientific journals, diaries, and other sources provide evidence of these changes, as well as of the development of a new understanding of community that cross species borders, including some types of animals and excluding some types of humans. They help explain why Bailey, you can tell listeners who he was, and many others saw the eastern gray squirrel not merely as an interesting object of nature study, but also as a morally significant member of the urban community. Well, there's a lot in in that paragraph, but it it offers, I think, a tantalizing glimpse at a number of the issues that you raise in the piece. So reflect on on that paragraph for us, please. So my own background is mostly writing about um, the history of wildlife conservation, biodiversity conservation. I spent a lot of time working on species like the conservation of species like tigers or killer whales or grizzly bears, these big, exotic, charismatic animals. And after working on that for a while, I started to think, well, what about the everyday, the quotidian, you know, the the small, mm. <laughs> um, perhaps still charismatic, but not um, the same level of exoticism as some of these other animals. And I wanted to write about something that was closer to home, um, you know, very literally. Uh, what what do people see when they when they walk out their front doors or they go to an urban park? Um, and so that was part of my own reason to want to shift writing, you know, to write something about squirrels um, rather than something about tigers, for instance. Th- that actually connects to, you mentioned Bailey. This is Vernon Bailey, um, who was the chief field naturalist of the U.S. Um, Bureau of Biological Survey um, for a few decades in the early 20th century. And if you look at the historiography, the things that have been written about Bailey, it's almost 100% focused on his work on predator control in the West. It's about wolves and coyotes. But it turns out that Bailey was fascinated by the, the animals that he found around him in Washington, D.C., where he lived, you know, the birds, the squirrels. 
and uh, was did radio programs where he tried to convince people of the importance of of these urban animals, and that's been entirely left out of the the what's been been written about him and about a lot of other um, naturalists during the period, and so I I wanted to kind of recover that um, that history that I think we've tended to overlook because of our fascination with these um, distant, exotic, and charismatic um, places and and animals. And then the, the other, you know, the other thing that brought me to it was that I've been reading a lot, and this comes up in the, as I, I mentioned this in the article, the the movement of kind of animal agriculture out of the city. So you don't have um, cows being, you know, providing milk that are, uh, in the in the heart of the city anymore. They get they get moved outside the city. Mm-hmm. And there's this narrative in the, I think in literature about urban urban nature and human animal relationships that cities become completely evacuated of animals with the emergence of kind of the modern city. Um, and we know that's not true. I mean, in part because there's so many pets in the city, right? Um, but it's also, there's lots of other wildlife in the city. Some of it wildlife that people like to have around, like squirrels and birds, and some of it wildlife that people don't like to have so, around so much, like uh, rats, um, for instance. And so I wanted to kind of push back against the idea that, that Cities had been completely evacuated of all kinds of non-human life, and actually, so guess what? You know, there were there were animals. In fact, in some ways, there were an increasing number and diversity of of non-human animals in the city um, during this period, even if they were very different than the the kinds that had been there before. Interesting, interesting. And and uh, talk a little bit about how in this in this period, late nineteenth and early twentieth century, uh, squirrels became. This is really crucial, I think. To your whole argument, morally significant members of the urban community. One of the, the most striking and I think surprising things about looking back at the sources from the late 19th and early 20th century that reference squirrels and other urban wild animals is how how obsessed they are almost with with this idea of community. Um, and I think it's easy to dismiss some of this rhetoric and to say this is just anthropomorphic. This is just people projecting mm-hmm. um, uh, ideas about human communities onto non-human animals. But I think we we can and should take that seriously, that that rhetoric. Um, and when you, you look at the way people are writing about squirrels, it's not simply as aesthetic improvements to the urban environment. It's not simply about recreating some kind of vision of the pastoral in the heart of the city, even though that's part of it. It's also really about establishing some kind of sense of community that's based on on trust on trust and charity. Um, so one of my favorite examples, um, which I mentioned in the article as well, is um, Ernest Thompson Seton, who is a, a Canadian American nature writer and a naturalist, and one of the co-founders in the U.S. of the Boy Scouts, and in uh, I think 1914, around then, he he publishes an article in the Boy Scout magazine, Boy's Life, where he encourages uh, the introduction of what he calls missionary squirrels to American cities. <laughs> and the idea there is that um, by introducing squirrels to the hearts of cities, to urban parks, and by teaching young boys to treat them with compassion and charity, the squirrels themselves can serve almost as as agents of moral improvement in the city. They teach generosity to young boys, for example, that that sort of thing, right? That's right. Like so, the, there's this great 
fear that runs through a lot of the children's literature of the of the boy who succumbs to the temptation of of cruelty towards the vulnerable and you know not just animals but also uh vulnerable other other um humans and um the the squirrels are, are seen as and in teaching boys how how fun it is to feed the squirrels and how grateful the squirrels are to be fed. This is a way of of, of sort of teaching these young boys that actually there are rewards to not being cruel. There are rewards in 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 compassion as well. So feeding, uh, which is so central to this uh, moral vision of community with the squirrels, becomes so important, doesn't it? It's really fascinating uh, how it's a way that people could show they're generous and. And, and people, and I'd love for you to talk a little more about this. People saw differences um, uh, between squirrels begging and squirrels demanding, and squirrels being um, uh, sort of un, ungrateful by by biting, and that the moral character of people could be seen in how they dealt with the squirrels. It's it's the, so the feeding is just rich with symbolism over this time, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it plays a very practical role in the spread of squirrels through American cities. So the very first populations that are introduced in places like Philadelphia, Boston, New Haven in the 1850s, um, these populations are almost entirely dependent on human handouts for food because there's not a lot of other options for them, not a lot of other food sources. And um, this continues to be crucial. Uh, People are feeding squirrels. People are setting up, um, for instance, in Boston, along Commonwealth Avenue in in the Back Bay area of Boston, there are nut, nut boxes kind of set up on uh, attached to trees along the avenue that children can go and fill with food to feed the squirrels. So there's actually very like very kind of practical biological importance of of all these new food sources that are being provided for squirrels intentionally in the city. You you note at one point here that the squirrels uh, I'm reading now from your piece the squirrels' apparent dependence on human handouts also led some to question whether they were in fact deserving of charity or whether their mendicant life in the city had led them into moral decay. A horrible sight uh, to, to see squirrels in moral decay, but, but right. interesting here to think about whether people really were thinking about the squirrels or thinking about the impoverished uh, humans in, in their midst. I mean, is there that sense of maybe people working out Who's who's supposed to be within the boundaries of who gets charity, who's eligible for charity, who's really needy versus, you know, who's just lazy and in moral decay in thinking about squirrels? Yeah. So the, there's the biological, ecological side of what it what it means to have lots of, food, of new sources of food in the city. But then there's also this moral side. And um, I think uh, for the people who were kind of Pro squirrel, the real squirrel enthusiasts, um, they were always emphasizing uh, the the relationships of trust, charity, and gratitude that were bound up in this moment of feeding, um, and especially the idea that um, squirrels in the city were vulnerable because they're out of their natural environment and they were reliant on humans, and that over time, through feeding, a squirrel would would gradually learn to trust and depend. On, on 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 their human benefactors, and um, it's a very paternalistic vision of human animal human non human relationships, 
and and so that was the, that was the positive vision. It was a vision of of inclusion, an attempt to expand ideas that had already developed, I think, in the domestic sphere with relation relation to to um, you know dogs, cats, other domesticated animals. This idea of almost incorporating these animals into the into the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a way of extending that that idea that kind of domet- what um, Catherine Greer has called a domestic ethic of kindness out into the into the public sphere in relationship to animals that weren't actually owned by anybody, that weren't actually part of anybody's family. Um, and so, yeah, to create this, this sense of community. But then there's also like the, the dark side um, of, of this relationship. So, and, and there's two, two uh, dark or, or negative sides of this idea of community that, that I emphasize in, in the article. Um, one is the way in which that very effort of including non-human animals like squirrels within some idea of, of community, even if it's a hierarchical idea of community, but a very strong idea of community, um, it simultaneously served as a way of excluding other animals and some humans from that same sense of community. So predators in the city, and that included cats and, or hawks, um, predators that made squirrels afraid, that threatened squirrels' lives, were seen as unwelcome. Right, they were excluded from that sense of the community, and then humans, and and often the the human group that uh, was uh, received the most opprobrium was probably Italian immigrants at the time. A great deal of uh, kind of xenophobic um, attitude towards Italian immigrants, and particularly their tendency, uh, their alleged tendency to shoot uh, squirrels and birds for for food, and so. Immigrants or young boys who tortured or who killed or hunted um, these animals that had been included into some sense of community were themselves excluded from it. William Hornaday, who was the, a conservationist, a taxidermist, and, and the founder of um, the Bronx Zoo, in one article published in the early, around 1903, I think, Grouped together um, vermins and, and po- I think it was vermin and poachers in the same category of excluded of, of, of entities or people or animals that were excluded from the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one negative side, and then the other negative side was the potential like consequences for the, the squirrels themselves as they became um, dependent on human charity and, and trust. Um, squirrels had often been held up as as sort of allegorical symbols of hard work and foresight, you know, because they spent so much time gathering nuts for the to make it through the winter but in the city they began started to be accused of becoming lazy and dependent <laughs> <laughs> and it's very easy to see the echoes with um, you know attitudes towards humans who might become similarly dependent and accused of being of being lazy or, or not worthy of not worthy of charity yeah I'm, I'm remembering was it the, the the example you gave from Boston of someone either complaining or making fun of squirrels that were so obese they couldn't like, jump from one branch to another or something yeah this is this is an early this is very actually quite early this is in, in new haven already in the i think around 1860 um somebody says they, they've gotten so obese that they're starting to fall like miss their lose their grip and fall from the treetop yeah that's a great line that's a well and this this dark side you you i think uh capture very well when you write the introduction of squirrels to American cities and the squirrels' own readiness to seek food from human hands thus provided new opportunities for drawing lines between the civilized and the uncivilized, native and foreign, 
rich and poor community member and an outsider. Um, and it, the, the very landscape, the, the development of the urban landscape itself um, makes squirrel populations grow, right? Uh, you mentioned uh, that the available of human food waste and attics and power lines and telephone lines, so that the environment is becoming even more hospitable for squirrels in the urban landscape. There's definitely multiple causes that are contributing to the the fact that squirrels by the beginning of the 20th century are virtually ubiquitous in American cities. Um, it, a good piece of evidence uh, for the importance of landscape comes from the fact that the, the very earliest introductions, the ones in Philly, Philly in Boston, New Haven, they're not particularly successful. So um, Philadelphia intentionally gets rid of its squirrels in the 1860s because it's worried about their negative impact on bird populations. Boston's Com uh, the squirrels in Boston Common seem to have died out by the mid-1860s, and New Haven's really reduced to a very low number. So these were very vulnerable populations, and, and they were partly vulnerable because they were so small and they were so isolated. They couldn't really expand outside of those little public squares or the Boston Common or the New Haven Green. They were really confined. Um, and two things happened. One, more squirrels were introduced on a, on a wider scale, and two, this, this, the very landscape of the city changed. Um, and I think one of the key factors was the introduction of uh, what are sometimes called landscape parks or Olmstedian um, parks. So these were big parks. I mean, the, probably the biggest and most famous example is Central Park, um, but also in the Boston area, the Emerald Necklace, the string of, of string of parks. Um, and these new parks were bigger. They were um, often uh, had more had more woods. Like in Central Park, there's the Ramble, which is a kind of wooded, you know, kind of quote-unquote wild area. And they provided much better and much bigger habitat for squirrels. And at the same time, there were planting of trees um, along city streets. Um, and this create, helped to create a landscape that, that squirrels could flourish in. And so by 1900, um, it's almost unthinkable that that a city like Philadelphia could actually eliminate its squirrels because they so successfully spread throughout a city that's whose very landscape has become more more friendly to their to their presence. Mm -hmm. And uh, rural folks, by and large, are not looking upon squirrels in in this way. So right, they're not uh, the boundaries of community are not extended. They're still looked upon as as pests or or vermin to be killed or or at the very least controlled is that right that's right and i mean this is actually something i don't the the what i focused on in my article was um the urbanization of the gray squirrel so i don't say as much about what's happening outside of the city but um in part that's because things aren't changing that much out of the city as far as i can tell squirrels continue to be seen primarily as they as they've been seen for hundreds of years primarily as a kind of small game and then secondarily as uh, the potential crop crop pests. Um, so there were reports from the early 19th century of hordes of gray squirrels um, swarming over cornfields and leaving them leaving them empty in their wake. And um, so in rural areas, the, the, this image of squirrels as either pests or as something to be hunted for sport uh, or for food uh, remains large, largely unchanged. And this leads to obviously leads to conflicts between urban squirrel lovers and people outside of the city. What's also interesting to me is that 
some of the very same people who would become outraged at the killing of a squirrel within the city were themselves weekend hunters who would go out and kill squirrels in rural areas. Um, so it was completely possible to, to think of these animals in, in both of these ways at the same time. Even by the same and, person. Yeah, that's, by the same person. Huh. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, you know, and, and so I, it took me a while to sort of come to at least a hypothesis about why that was or, you know, how to make sense of that. And, um, and to me, it has to do a lot with this idea of trust and the idea of community. So the squirrels within the city had learned to trust humans, had learned to become part of the community. And it was the violation of that trust that I think made people, um, at least the squirrel lovers, upset. It wasn't the killing so much itself of an animal, but the killing of an animal that had learned to become part of the community and had learned to trust humans. Um, and so wild squirrels that had never learned that and had never been treated as members of the community, um, you could kill those without a kind of moral um, qualms. Yeah, it's fascinating. That one of the readers uh, of, of your piece um, raised the issue I thought was interesting and wanted to ask you about, uh, observed that you wrote mostly about um, literate, urban slash suburban northern and probably mostly white elite classes here who are defining community and, and drawing boundaries. Do you suspect that, say, if you were writing about urban areas in the Southwest or the West or the South, that, that these kinds of stories would emerge? Would they emerge maybe with a different animal and not a, a squirrel? Is this really a kind of uh, New Englandly story? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's not entirely a New England story because there's New York, there's Washington, D.C., there's Philadelphia. Um, so it certainly extends down the eastern seaboard. It's still a northern story. <laughs> um, I, I found very few sources related to cities in the south. Um, and I did find quite a few sources um, related to Midwestern cities. So Chicago, for instance. Um, you find very, very similar rhetoric and language and Seattle, San Francisco. These are also places, actually places where the, the gray squirrel isn't native, um, where, where these squirrels were introduced, um, as well as in the UK and, and some other places um, abroad. But yeah, I, I mean, the, the question of, of uh, who, who are these people exactly? Um, it's, there's no doubt that it was elite often white, often Northerners, and often New Englanders um, who had a commitment to a certain set of humane values and a certain vision of, of charity, and a certain vision of community, um, and that weren't necessarily shared in other places. Um, and it's also very true that to the extent that, you know, working class people or, or non-white people show up in these stories, it's often as, they're figured often as the villains, right, by, by squirrel lovers. They're the ones who don't um, agree that squirrels should be protected or who aren't sufficiently respectful of their right to live in the city. Um, and so I think you could quite easily, and this is something I try to emphasize a bit, you could quite easily flip the story around and, and see this as a, as a story of the dangers of community, the dangers of a concept of community that is inherently exclusive. Fascinating. Yes, yes. Uh, you move toward the end of your piece 
uh, you call the, the last section from charity to ecology, from this kind of charitable vision, and you mentioned an, an ecological vision in which, once again, the status of squirrel, the status of predators uh, be, begins to change. And a whole variety of questions I thought about when, when you introduced this. Uh, what are the characteristics of this ecological vision? What changes with the rise uh, of this vision? And were there any intermediate steps between this charitable and ecological vision? So let me, just having thrown those out, I'd, I'd love to hear you uh, talk a little about this very important transformation that you date sort of in the latter part of the 20th century. Yeah. So that, you know, that um, part of the article was actually part, partly inspired by my own encounters with signs that I think we've all seen now in many parks, which say do not feed the animals. Um, and you also have, there's also been campaigns, for instance, focus on other, another animal, which is, um, has been fed in cities for a long time, pigeons. Um, there've been campaigns in places like, like London and, um, also American cities to reduce the feeding of pigeons. Um, and, uh, what struck me about these signs was how this isn't exactly the opposite of, of what you would have seen a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, the people administering parks were aggressively encouraging the feeding of, of animals in cities. And so to me, it raised the question, when and why did this change? When and why did feeding animals go from being something that actually strengthened the community to something that was seen as um, somehow undermining it? So, so far as I can tell, um, there's a, this, these ideas of charity and community are expressed in relationship to, to urban wildlife are strongest in the late 19th and early 20th century. You continue to see those same themes pop up over the course of the 20th century, but at some point they become fairly routinized. Nobody is excited by 1950, let's say. Um, they're certainly not as excited um, as, as earlier um, advocates have been about the presence of these animals in the city. Everybody's used to them and everybody is quite used to also the, the, the downsides, the negative parts, um, squirrels digging up your garden and so forth. Um, and so, um, and then it's really in, in the 60s, 70s, 80s that, that there's a shift that happens and that's when these, uh, these signs start popping up. And it's also in the 1970s and beginning of the 1980s, there are efforts to reduce squirrel populations in cities. Um, for instance, uh, Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. Um, was estimated by some scientists to have the world's densest population of gray squirrels because they were being fed so often um, by tourists, by local people, um, and that this was leading to various negative consequences for the squirrels, for the parks. Um, and what you start to see is that this old valorization of charity, this idea that you could demonstrate your worth and you could strengthen the community by feeding animals, starts to get replaced with a different kind of moral vision, one in which it's the autonomy of the animal that's most important. It's authenticity and its connection within to other uh, organisms in an ecological network. And in that context, feeding starts to look like a sort of unjustified intrusion and possibly a distortion of the natural behavior of, of the animal. And, and, and that's when you start to get these signs and we start to get a whole environmental rhetoric that's about, it's more about leaving the animals alone to pursue their own activities 
than it is about trying to bring them closer and closer into a into some kind of relationship of charity. And the role and perception of predators undergoes a sea change here as well, right? Yeah. So, you know, in the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century, the predator is a creature, whether it's human or non-human, is a creature that undermines those bonds of trust that hold a community together. Because if a squirrel can't be sure whether an approaching human is going to feed or kill it, um, that squirrel is going to start to behave differently. Is going to is not going to solicit feeding in the same way. Is not going to express, you know, reveal the same sort of gratitude for it uh, as before. And and so cats, hawks, um, dogs, um, immigrants who don't you know respect the right of, of squirrels to live in the city, they all get classed together as as actors who are undermining the sense of of trust in the community by creating a kind of culture of fear. Um, by the late 20th century, that's changed. You start to see people celebrating the presence of hawks in cities, for instance, as signs of the potential compatibility of urban life with biodiversity, with uh, sustainable ecosystems, and so forth. Um, and that's even though the, the hawks are actually restoring a kind of sense of fear um, to the city that reformers of the late 19th and early 20th century had tried to eliminate. And so the the image of the the iconic image that you mentioned in in the piece of uh, the old man on the park bench feeding the pigeons or feeding the squirrels is seen in the late twentieth century as a kind of unhealthy enabler rather than uh, a a generous giver of food, right? That's right. Yeah, it's somebody who's actually by the late twentieth century who's um, undermining the health of the individual animal and of the ecosystem. Whereas a hundred years before it had been somebody who was actually strengthening the bonds of community um, across species boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you uh, after, after doing this piece uh, and then thinking out of it, are there related projects that, that have come out of this piece or was this a kind of interesting foray for you to do and then you're you're back to different kinds of of projects well it was definitely an experiment um in the sense that i wasn't sure i would be able to find the sources and i wasn't sure how how deep this story would would go you know um would i just find a couple of newspaper art kind of um off the cuff newspaper articles it turned out that there was a lot of sources there so um and uh it certainly helped that um that we now have these um, search capabilities for going through old sources that we didn't have uh, before. Because if you're researching a topic like squirrels, um, they, they appear in very few headlines, let me put it that way. Um, but but they often get, you know, they often get mentioned somewhere down in an article that's about something else or just mentioned in passing. And, and it was partly by like assembling all of those um, passing mentions that I was able to get a sense of the of the bigger picture. Mm. Um, so it was also a, method, a sort of methodological experiment for me as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it has for me raised some new new questions. Um, one of the things I mentioned briefly in the article, and I wish I'd had more time to go into, is that the the urban landscape itself continues to change, um, and that continues to change the conditions for the flourishing of squirrels and other animals in the city. Um, as well as the conditions for relationships between humans and those animals. So one really concrete example, um, when squirrels are first introduced, there are no automobiles in the city. Mm. There are studies from biologists in the late 20th century that suggest that, at least in some places, the 
leading cause of death for the urban squirrel is is being crushed by a car. And by leading, it's something like 70, 80% of squirrels die this way. Um, and that might not be universally true, but it's all, I think it is true that, that this is a huge, a huge factor in, in um, uh, urban squirrel mortality. Um, so the, the infrastructures, the technical infrastructures that, that um, cities are based on, as those change, they change the conditions of life for everybody in them, not just the people, but also the animals, plants, bacteria, what have you, um, the whole kind of ecosystem of the city. Um, and in the case of, uh, and they can also sometimes be beneficial. So um, in the case of, of squirrels, as at the very same time that the streets were becoming more dangerous, as there were more and more cars on them, there were also new ways of getting across streets that were less dangerous. So you see the spread of telephone and power lines across cities. And these create a whole other network of transportation, you might say, um, for, for the squirrels. Um, that allows them to escape some of the dangers of, of the streets. And so one of the things I'm, I'm looking at now is, is, is how we can think about the, the changing technical infrastructures of the city um, and how they create um, opportunities for kind of other, other forms of life to flourish or, or not within the city. So let me ask you finally something that I, I didn't think about at the beginning. There was human intention in introducing these squirrels to these urban environments in what the mid 19th century, roughly talk about this early period and uh, how these squirrels and why these squirrels were consciously introduced into these urban environments. Yeah, I guess um, what I, one of the things I really wanted to convey in this article is how intentional the introduction of these animals was to the city. I think so North, eastern gray squirrels, um, Sayuris carolinensis, it's a species that's native to North America. These squirrels have been here and have been evolving here for uh, millions of years. Um, and so they're not an introduced species in that sense. They're not introduced from some other place. Um, but I think we often have the sense when we look around us that, you know, there were animals and plants here and then humans arrived at some point and started building their communities and eventually building cities. And then, and there are small remnants, some small remnants within cities of the nature that used to be there, right? We're kind of in their, in their space and these animals have somehow managed to survive uh, within the city. And that's a very almost naturalizing story. And it's a story that also pits human civilization against a kind of externalized nature. Um, what I wanted to show in this article, what I discovered, which I wasn't, I didn't know before I got into it, was that this is not, for the most part, a case of squirrels lingering in some grove within the city and then eventually adapting to that new environment or being adopted by the people there. This was cities that by the mid-19th century were almost totally devoid of these, these animals. And then a conscious decision by the people living in those cities to bring them in. So in the case of Boston, that meant actually going to Vermont. The squirrels introduced to Boston came from Vermont, not just not from somewhere on the outskirts of the city, but actually from from quite far away. And um, and they were introduced to the city to really to try to transform the, the urban landscape. And uh, that's you know the squirrels were fed, there were houses that were built. Um, this was a really intentional project. And then I think at some point what happens is we forget. We forget these old projects. We forget these attempts to reshape the landscape. We start to naturalize them. We start to assume they were always there um, and somehow outside of history. And so I really wanted to historicize this 
this thing, this experience that I think many of us have of walking out our door, going to a park and running into a squirrel and say, somebody made a choice and a whole, whole bunch of people made a choice 150 years ago or 100 years ago to make these animals part of the urban landscape. And I think actually that's that may be the, the core point that I want to wanted to get across in this article. Well, I think you you did it in an elegant way, and I suspect that many of us will, will not look at squirrels in the same way anymore uh, after this fine piece. Thank you, Etienne. So we've been talking today with Etienne Benson, Assistant Professor in the History and Sociology of Science Department at uh, University of Pennsylvania, and he is the author in the December 2013 issue of the Journal of American History of the Urbanization of the Eastern Gray Squirrel in the United States. Etienne, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in March for our next episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at jahcast at oah.org.